Welcome and thanks for joining us today on the Abundance Podcast. We'll go ahead and get started in prayer. Well, thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, come together with other people that are having a desire to seek after you, Lord, and, and Holy Spirit. You are welcome here. You are welcome wherever anyone is listening. And I just thank you, Lord, for this time spent in your word. And I thank you for the revelation and the understanding and the picture of the person that you are, that it'll help us to better understand how awesome you are, Lord. Thank you, God. You are awesome. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, initially, the plan was to have the book of Job and, and Paul's thorn in the flesh on the same episode, uh, but I decided it'd be best for them to be separated. Today, we're going to be going over the book of Job in this fifth part of the series entitled The Sovereignty of God. And I guess before we get going on this, I, I just wanted to interject this little parable that Jesus gave, and it's in Matthew 7, and it's about the the storm that came against the houses that were built on the sand and the house that was built on the rock. So it's in Matthew 7, verse 24 through 27. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. So just real quick, I just wanted to point out, you know, that's a pretty common story if you've grown up in church. But what I want to point out here is that, yes, there were two houses. Yes, one was built on the rock and one was built on sand. But one thing I, w I just want to point out with that is that the storm hit both the houses. <laughs> we know that the house built on the rock is a representation of Jesus. And I'm sure there's more you can take from that. But, you know, just on the surface level, that's what I'm looking at it, at it as, is that, you know, Jesus is the rock. He's the cornerstone. And, and we want to build our our house on him as he has our foundation. But I just wanted to point out that storms hit both houses. You know, a lot of times in church, it can be taught that once we become born again, everything is now going to be hunky-dory because we're a born-again believer. And, and it's just the opposite. When we get turned on to God and we really get seeking after him, and, and you can get born again and not seek after God. You can stay saved and stuck if, if you choose to, but we all have the choice to run after God and to seek after him. And, but when we are running after God and we're seeking after him and we're getting in his word and we're spending time with him, it's not that the storms will lessen. The storms probably will pick up because the enemy wants to take us out. He comes after us for the word's sake. But I just, again, I wanted to point out that storms came against both these houses. And so I just want us to be aware before we get into this teaching on the book of Job that storms and trials and persecutions and different things, they're going to come our way. So I just wanted to point that out here. But anyways, let's go ahead and get started here again. Uh, we're continuing on in a series about the sovereignty of God. And first, I would just want to say that this is not an attempt to give a complete teaching on the book of Job. You know, there's so much we can learn from the book of Job. Um, really, what I hope this will do is clear up some of the misconceptions we have learned, either from our time spent in the Word reading Job ourselves or from what we may have been taught from someone else. The book of Job has really become one of the main ways 
if not the main way, that people use to try and defend what I've entitled the extreme sovereignty of God. And this extreme sovereignty of God doctrine says that everything that happens is God's will, that all things happen for a reason, that God is allowing everything to happen that happens, that God across the board controls everything. And as we've discussed in the prior episodes, this is clearly not true when we have a better understanding of the Word of God. Now, I'm not going to spend much more time going back over what we've already gone over in the last four episodes, but here's a couple foundational scriptures that clearly dispute the extreme sovereignty of God doctrine. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. To follow that up, Matthew 7.13, and this is Jesus talking. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many... Who go in by it. So is it God's will for people to go to hell? No. But do people go to hell? Yes. And this is not because God predestined them to be damned to hell. It's because they chose not to receive the free gift of salvation by simply believing Jesus is the Christ and that he was raised from the dead. God is not sending people to hell. He's simply enforcing the decision that each individual has made on their own. So the book of Job is used almost like an anchor to defend this type of belief of the extreme sovereignty of God. Now in the past, when I've read the book of Job, if I'm really honest, I'd almost fall asleep while I was reading it. To me personally, it's never been the most exciting book, and I've really had little to no understanding to go back and read it after the one or maybe two times I've read it. But with what I've learned now, that was really out of a lack of understanding. God has revealed a lot to me in the last four or five months about the book of Job. And now, man, it's it's awesome. <laughs> and it always was. <laughs> I just didn't understand. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So I knew that the book of Job was there for my benefit, but it was just a challenge for me to read. And that's because so much of it is a conversation between Job and his three friends. And that was the struggle really for me to read it because this conversation between Job and his three friends is from chapters 3 to 31. And so it's a large chunk out of the 42 total chapters that make up the book of Job. So the issue was, I simply didn't know how to read it. And you might be thinking, well, what do you mean, know how to read it? You know, you just pick up the Bible and you read it. What's the problem? Well, Job is written in a way that you can read the entire book and think you have an understanding of God's character and nature from what you've just read, only to get to the end of the book and learn that what you believed to be true was incorrect. And as a result, have to go back and read it all over again now that you know what's been said at the end of the book. And for me, because it was such a struggle to get through it in the first place, I just wasn't going to go back and read it all over again. That statement will make more sense here in a little bit. That's one of the things we're going to cover. And that's one of the things I hope to clear up through this teaching. I promise you, my goal here is not to overcomplicate things <laughs> or to try and be technical or anything like that. If you, if you know me on a personal level, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about how God uses the simple, you know, 
you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a flashy guy. I'm not a, uh, not saying I could never overcomplicate things, you know, but that's not the goal with this teaching. Okay. The sole purpose throughout this series has been to bring about freedom to all who listen. Because if we think God's the one putting bad stuff on us, and that's just the way it is because it's all from God, then we'll be in bondage. And if that were true, why would we put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, like Ephesians 6.11 says? You know, why would we do that? Why would we need the armor of God at all if everything was from God and everything happens that God wants to happen? If God was in total control, the power of life and death wouldn't be in our tongue. If God was in total control, there'd be no law of sowing and reaping. If God was the reason why everything that happens happens, why would we need to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from us? And that was in James 4, 7. There'd be no reason to resist because it'd all be from God. If the extreme sovereignty of God were true, there'd be no one destroyed for the lack of knowledge. It'd only be because of God's sovereign choice. And that's found in Hosea 4, 6. And what it's saying is, if you get knowledge, you'll stop destruction. So I want to encourage you to make the decisions to stick it out as we go over the way or basically the format in which the book of Job is written. Gaining a proper understanding of the sovereignty of God really has the potential to unlock not only the word of God, but our relationship with the Father. To start, here's a super non-detailed brush over of the book of Job with what happens. So Job is a very blessed man and he loves God. Satan has an interaction with God about Job. Job has a bunch of terrible things happen to him. He has three friends that come and talk with him. At the end, Job is restored and is blessed twice as much as he had at the beginning. And where it actually says that he was blessed with twice as much is in Job 42.10. Now, if you're relatively familiar with the book of Job, you're probably thinking, well, that, that's a terrible description <laughs> of, of how I just put Job in a nutshell. And I did that on purpose. I know it's not the best description, but there's a reason I gave such a vague description. That's because some of the details we typically include in explaining the book of Job just aren't supported with scripture. And that's something we'll look at. So before we get into the first part, I want us to think about Job as if it were a board game. So my daughter just had her third birthday. And what's the dad's role at every birthday party? Uh, we throw away the wrapping paper. We cut off all the zip ties and the twist ties. We get the toys out and we put them all together. <laughs> That's our job. But in the case where one of the toys is a new board game, and let's just assume nobody is familiar with how to play it, you know, what do you do? You get it all set up and then you read the instructions. And why is that? Because if you don't, you could come up with a way to play it, but it wouldn't be the way that the creator of the game intended for it to be played. Same goes with the book of Job. We need to see what the intent was behind it before we read it, because by doing so, it'll help us to understand it. And ultimately, we need to be looking at the Old Testament across the board through the lens of the New Testament, through the revelation of Jesus. If you're new to the faith, and even if you've been a born-again believer, but a lot of the things that we've been talking about just in these first two series that I've done on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the sovereignty of God, if all this is really, really new to us, I just encourage you to read the New Testament. The New Testament is going to help you gain a better understanding of Jesus, who he is, his person. You'll see 
him going around healing all. You see him never going around putting sickness and disease on people. You really get to get a better understanding of Jesus and the Father. And then because you've gained that foundation, which is Jesus, in the New Testament by reading it, when you go back and you read the Old Testament, not only will you see him all through it, but it'll make more sense to you. So, you know, the Bible is not a book where you pick it up just like a regular book and you start in the very beginning. Now, you can do that, but again, what I'm just trying to stress is that we want to start off by getting a revelation of Jesus. He needs to be our foundation, just like that scripture we talked about with the two houses and the floods that came. We need to get our foundation on Jesus on the rock. And then as we go back and we read the rest of the Bible, no matter where we read it, whether it's in the Begots or it's in Leviticus, we'll see Jesus you know, all through all of it. Again, we've already used this scripture, but 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And that scripture is absolutely true. However, before we get into this, we need to be made aware that we can't use scriptures 3 through 31 of the book of Job to properly interpret the book as a whole. Now, I know that sounds blasphemous. Hey, you just read that scripture that all the, you know, I get it. But we'll see in a moment that the reason we can't use chapters 3 through 31 to give a literal interpretation of the book of Job as a whole, the reason we can't do that is because of what God himself said. Again, I'm not saying we can't benefit from these chapters. I'm simply saying we need to make sure we don't pluck a scripture out and make it say something that isn't consistent with the rest of the book. And we definitely can't use those chapters to properly identify God's character and nature because God would be misrepresented, especially in the age of grace that you and I live in now. Again, I didn't forget what we just read, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Here's what I'm talking about. So Job 42, that's where we're going to start. Job 42 is the last chapter in the book of Job. In Job 42, 7, it says, And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, and I'm going to get all these names probably wrong. I don't know how to pronounce them, okay? <laughs> Just keep on moving with me. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So God is flat out telling them that what they were saying was wrong. In verse 8, God tells Job's three friends then what to do, and that's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zovar, but ends it by saying in verse 8, the latter part of that verse, B, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So again, we see those two examples where God tells them they were wrong, the three friends, but then he says that Job said something correctly. So let's take a look at what God says Job said correctly. In Job 42.3, and this is the, the latter part of that verse, it's Job speaking. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So that's Job, That's out of the mouth of Job himself. I did not understand. I did not know. In chapter 38, and this is God talking in response to Job from what Job had previously said. You don't know, the previous verse was in chapter 42 and this one's in 38. You know, we're kind of bouncing around just to try and make it clear and try to make it make more sense. But in 
Job 38, 2, it says, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So God is telling Job, your words don't have knowledge in them. <laughs> That's pretty black and white. In chapter 40, Job answers God and says, in verses 3 through 5, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. So Job is recognizing that what he's been saying is incorrect. So what can we take from this? What Job said that was right was that he was wrong. So Job is simply admitting that he was wrong. And God confirmed that Job was wrong by saying in Job 42, 7, and then again in verse 9, that Job admitting he was wrong was correct. Now, I know that's kind of a tongue twister, but basically Job knows he was wrong. God confirms he was wrong, and that's where we are. So not only did Job say things that were incorrect, but Job's three friends say things were, that were incorrect. And that is what makes up chapters 3 through 31. So that is why we can't use those scriptures to give a proper understanding of the book of Job as a whole. But we can take things from those scriptures. Yes, those chapters were not there by mistake. They're there on purpose. So we can benefit from them. We just can't read those scriptures and make a literal translation of the book of Job. We have to make sure we're using it in the proper context. So this is just a funny side note. Psalms comes right after the book of Job. And in Psalms 1.1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. <laughs> that's, a, that's an awesome transition in the next book. But, you know, here's Job and his three friends saying all this stuff that God says that they are wrong. And then the next book says, hey, yeah, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. You know, I, I find that pretty funny. In Job 2.11-13, now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. Yeah, that's terrible. I, I don't know how to pronounce them. But, For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him, to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. So Job's three friends, they come and sit with him, and they sit with him in, for a total of seven nights and seven days. Now Job's three friends then go on to speak in a total of nine chapters. And this is, we're talking about in chapters 3 through 31. In nine chapters is when Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar speak in Eliphaz speaks in 4, 5, 15, and 22. Bildad speaks in 8, 18, and 25. Zophar speaks in 11 and 20. And the chapters will start out with, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said. So it's really obvious anytime anyone is speaking throughout the book of Job. And it's easy to see when another person takes over to do the talking. And I'm saying that because as insignificant as that may seem, That'll actually be a key factor later on as we continue reading. And Job across chapters 3 through 31 spoke a total of nine times in 20 total chapters. Again, 
chapters 3 through 31, Job is having a conversation back and forth with his three friends. So here's the key. And I've already kind of stated this, but I just want to keep hitting it home. We cannot draw a literal interpretation of what the book of Job is saying from these chapters. And that's chapters 3 through 31. Again, yes, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And it is. All things from the Bible are profitable. But because God himself corrected them, saying they did not speak what was right, we can't take statements from their conversation and say, this is what the book of Job is trying to tell us. So it's also extremely important to know that Job is written in a narrative format. And that may not be the exact way to say it, but there's a narrator. And it's like a writer who writes in a newspaper. It's from the third party. People are voicing their opinions, so we can't take everything in this book literally as from God. We can take things from it, but it's important to recognize that chapters 3 through 31 are man's reasoning. They were speaking out of their own natural thoughts and abilities and not inspired solely from God. Again, that is not my opinion. We know this because God tells them they were wrong. So here are some examples that cannot be used for a literal interpretation. And these are going to be found in between those chapters of 3 through 31. So Job 9, 16 through 18, and this is Job talking. It says, If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. So first off, God does listen. He doesn't multiply people's wounds and definitely not without cause. God doesn't just do things flippantly. God wasn't the one afflicting Job and he didn't allow, quote unquote, allow the devil to either. The devil had authority on earth, but we'll discuss that shortly. Basically, a lot of chapter 9 fits into this category. In Job 19.6, this is again Job talking, Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. Verse 8 through 10, he, speaking of God, has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. Well, first, God does not desire to uproot our hope like a tree. You know, that's just a lie. Again, later in chapter 42, Job admitted he was wrong. So these, some of, these are some of the things that he's saying, hey, hey, I was wrong. On the topic of hope, you know, God's DNA literally is hope. And, and the word hope doesn't mean to wish like its meaning has developed into today. I wish that would happen to me, or I wish that I could have that job, or I wish that. And I, the Bible word hope means to expect. And in this covenant that you and I live in, we can have an expectation of good from our daddy God because every good and perfect gift comes from God. God is our hope and we can expect good from him. So go back and listen to part one in this series where we established that God is good and he's never evil. Good God, bad devil. That's a good one to remember. Job 6, 9. That it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. First off, God has no desire to crush us and, and let's put it in a natural way. Would a loving father crush and destroy his own kids? You know, no. Job 19, verse 21. Have pity on me, have pity on me. O you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Again, those are all examples that we can't take 
as a literal interpretation for the book of Job. So here are some scriptures that can benefit us being in chapters 3 through 31. Job 19 verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. So that scripture was actually prophetic, and it was definitely inspired by God. Job 12 13. With him, talking about God, are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. Yes, he has all those things, that's for sure. Job 5.11, he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Job 11.13-20, if you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands towards him, if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed away and your life would be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like morning, and you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would dig around and take your rest in safety. You would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail and they shall not escape and their hope, loss of life. Some of the things in there are kind of like on the border of whether they apply in the New Testament or not, but I just wanted to you know, share that scripture with you. And the last one we got is Job 22, 21 through 23. And this is Eliphaz speaking. Now acquaint yourself with him and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive, please, instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. So again, I'm sure there's more in there, but I just wanted to point out a couple that can be used to benefit us. So yes, chapters 3 through 31, those chapters were not in the book of Job by accident, but we have to be aware that God corrected them and that we can't use those chapters literally to interpret the book of Job. So if we can't take a literal interpretation away from chapters 3 through 31, what chapters can we and why? So the chapters that are left are chapters 1 through 2, and then 32 through 42. And again, I'm not trying to be technical. And a lot of some of these first things that we're going to be sharing, you know, could be viewed as trying to be technical. And that's not the point. I just want to explain how the book of Job is written. And then at the end of this, we're going to actually get into to the word and we're just going to learn more about the story. But again, this is not intended to try and confuse us or to try and get you to fall asleep. <laughs> a lot of things that what I'm saying are intended to try and help us as we move on and as we read, because once we understand how the book of Job is written, it'll help us when we read it. So again, what chapters can we use to give an interpretation of the book of Job? So there are 13 chapters we can use to properly interpret the book of Job. To start, chapters 38 through 41. And those chapters, God is speaking. So those can very clearly be used for a literal interpretation. Again, Job is written in a narrative, like a writer in a newspaper from a third party. So we're going to do something a little different here. We're going to go back to middle school English class, <laughs> which I was never very good in school. I never liked to pay attention. So how are points of views described in the first, second, and third person? So let me say, it's a good thing I had Google to verify some of these things because I had totally forgotten about a lot of this. <laughs> well, because I had forgotten 
some of this and, you know, definitely wanted to make sure I was trying to be as accurate as I could. And I may not get all the terminology exactly correct, but I hope you can at least get the gist of what I'm saying. So with first person, the words I and we are used. In second person, it's you. In third person, it's he, she, it, and they. So in the third person, there's something called third person omniscient or something like that. I don't know how to pronounce it. Omniscient, omniscient. That's where the narrator has full access to the thoughts of all the characters. He has full knowledge of all the characters in the situation. So even if I'm not exactly correct with putting the third person narrative in the category of omniscient, because there's another category referred to as limited, where the narrator is still using the words he or she, but they're outside of the story. So even if I'm not exactly correct, I believe this will help us to understand how to interpret the book of Job. Again, this is not about knowing stuff. God doesn't care how many Bible verses we've memorized or or anything like that. The Christian life isn't about one day being on jeopardy and having all the answers. It's about knowing Jesus. So let's look at a couple books in the New Testament and see how they're written. Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So clearly Paul is writing, and this is in the first person. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Peter is writing in the first person. And you could really get technical with looking at the books of the Bible and deciding what person they're written in. And to go along with that, there's a lot of debate on who wrote certain books of the Bible. So I'm not interested in any of that. I just wanted to share this little tidbit because I think it'll help with what we're talking about. When you read chapters 1 and 2, you'll see it was written in a third-person format. But before we discuss those chapters, I want to look at chapter 32. So chapter 32 introduces a man named Elihu. And I also want to point out, as was the case with Job's three friends, that Job 2.11 shows that, that they made an appointment to come and be with Job. And that's, I'm talking about his three friends. And Elihu is not mentioned anywhere before chapter 32. So we can take from that, that since Elihu knew everything that had already happened, that he was already around with Job. So when exactly, I don't know, but I just want to point out that the Bible doesn't say anything about him arriving. And that's Elihu. So chapter 32, and the author of Job is speaking. So Job 32, 1 through 6 says, So these three men ceased answering Job, and he's referring to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Because he was righteous in his own eyes, then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. So Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite, answered and said. So then it continues on with Elihu speaking. So again, Elihu was never mentioned up until chapter 32. But these verses show us that he was there with them the entire time. And verse 4 it says, Now because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. So he waited his turn to speak. Elihu was there as Job and his three friends talked. In verse 5, 
it says, When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men. So from that, I just want to point out that you can't see if you're not there with them. Elihu was present with them and saw, meaning he was listening to their words. So then in Job 32, 6, in the latter part of that, so 6b through 14, Elihu, the son of Barakal the Bizite, begins to speak. Later in Job 32, 15, the author picks back up. So the author spoke in verses 1 through 6. Elihu speaks in verses 6, the tail end of that verse through 14. And then in 15, the author picks back up. So Job 32, 10 through 18, and this is Elihu speaking. He says, Therefore I say, listen to me. I also will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words. And that's just like in Job 32, 4. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I, and this is speaking of Elihu, paid close attention to you, and surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words, lest you say, we found wisdom. We have found wisdom. God will vanquish him, not man. Now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with our words. So I just want to point out in there, Elihu says, I paid close attention to you, and then he continues on. So really, verses 10 through 14 also support that Elihu was there while Job and his three friends had a conversation, but yet Elihu isn't mentioned until chapter 32. So let's continue on. And verse 15, they are dismayed and answer no more. Words escape them, and I have waited because they did not speak, because they stood still and answered no more. I also will answer my part. I too will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. So here's what I want to point out from these verses. Verses 10 through 14, and even back to 6b, which is the latter part of verse 6, Elihu is speaking in the first person. And again, starting in verse 16 through chapter 37. So Elihu speaks straight through in chapters 32 through 37, but in the midst of Elihu talking is Job 32.15. And Job 32.15 the author begins speaking in the middle of Elihu talking. And again, the author last spoke in Job 32, 1 through 6. So I'm not trying to confuse you here. I just want you to be able to see what I'm saying here. Job 32, 15. And again, we went over the first person, second person, and third person, and the pronouns, I believe is what they're called, that are used. So in 32, 15, it says, they, keyword, they, are dismayed and answer no more. Words escape them. So again, pronouns, they and them. And that is the third person narrative. So this is not an accident. Remember, 2 Timothy 3.16 that I've used several times, it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Something to remember is that Elihu was never told by God that he was wrong. Job and his three friends were pointed out and said that they were wrong, but God never pointed out that Elihu was wrong. So in Job 42, 7, here's that example. And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So again, God rebukes Job's three friends, and the reason God said Job was right was because in the previous verses, Job himself says he was wrong. 
So because Elihu is not corrected by God, this gives the impression that God was not displeased with what Elihu said. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So we can take Elihu's words as being inspired by God and that they are profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So back to finishing up this very key point with interpreting the book of Job. So following Elihu speaking in the first person in verse 15 through 16, the narrator comes back in and it says, they are dismayed and answered no more. Words escape them. And I have waited because they did not speak because they stood still and answered no more. So why is this important? Why am I trying to give emphasis in my voice when I'm reading that? Because we see two examples where it said they and them, and then later on it says they and they, but in the middle of that, it says, and I. Now, I is in the first person. So I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. Elihu is the narrator and the author of the book of Job. So again, the narrator is doing the talking in verses 1 through 6. Elihu talks in 6 through 14. Then the author interrupts Elihu in verses 15 through 16. And right in the middle of it says, and I have waited. So just to hit home on this point, if the author or narrator were trying to keep it a secret who he was, he would have left out the first person I used in verse 16. So it's almost like he messed up and accidentally threw that first person I in there. Now, we know he didn't mess up. It's in there on purpose. But for the sake of the argument, I'm going to use this idea to prove my point. This actually makes me think of my father-in-law. <laughs> At Easter, you know, not too long ago, he set up an Easter egg hunt in the woods for my two girls and, and their ages are four and three. And the other night, my wife and I were watching the videos that we shot you know, during that Easter egg hunt. And they'd go through the woods and they'd find eggs. And then the, the girls would open them up to see what was inside. And so, you know, in, in some of the eggs were some candies and this and that. But several of them had pennies and nickels and dimes and quarters and that sort of thing. And as we were watching the video, we heard my father-in-law say, you'll have to put those in your piggy bank. And then he instantly corrected himself and said, you'll have to get a piggy bank to put those in. <laughs> and so it's it's really subtle. It's funny. I never caught it when I was standing there, but we saw it on the video. So he basically spilt the beans on accident because later on, all three kids were going to get piggy banks. So again, I don't believe the narrator Elihu did that on accident, but it worked out good that he put that, that I in the first person in there when it switched back into the third person narrative in verses 15 through 16 so we could see that he was the, the author. So again, after all that, in verses 17, it continues on in the first person quoting Elihu. Next, we're going to kind of stay on this same little topic with this, with Elihu speaking and the narrator. And it may sound repetitive, but I promise there's a reason for it. It's There's a different angle to it that you have to see. And all this, again, is not about knowing stuff. It's about understanding how to properly read the book of Job so that it makes sense to us and it blesses us the way that God intended. Another thing to look at is the grammatical format with how things are written in Job. 
because the book of Job is written mostly in the third person, let's look at how it's grammatically written. Now, I really don't know how to describe what I'm trying to point out, so hopefully you'll get the, the point as I show you what I'm talking about without me using the proper terminology. Let's look at chapters 25, 26, and 27. And in my Bible, they're all on the same page, so it's really easy to, to follow one compared to three. But in chapter 25, verse 1, it says, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, and then verse 2, Dominion and, and then it, then it continues on. So what I want to point out here is that it says, So-and-so said, and in this case it's Bildad, and it's followed by quotation marks, and then Bildad speaks. Same thing in chapter 26, verse 1. Job answered and said, it points out that he's doing the talking, and then it starts off with quotation marks, how, and then continues on. In chapter 27, verse 1, it says, Moreover, Job continues his discourse and said, so the narrator points out who's going to do the talking, followed by quotation marks, then Job continues on with his speech. So in chapter 27 specifically, there's really no reason I can see for the separation between chapters 26 and 27 because they're both Job speaking. Nobody else speaks between the chapters. And the author doesn't interject another thought or anything like that. But for some reason, the author thought to say Job is speaking in 26. He continues on in 27. There's no reason to break it up. But the author chooses to do that and states that Job is continuing to talk. So why in the world am I bringing this up? <laughs> because in chapter 32, the author or the narrator picks back up in verse 1. Again, we know this because it goes back into the third person narrative format. And then in verse 6, it follows the same format as it did in chapters 25, 26, and 27. So here's an example. In Job 32, 6, it says, So Elihu, the son of Barakel the Bizite, answered and said, quotation marks, I, and then it continues on. So it says, Elihu answered and said, and it uses quotation marks, and then Elihu speaks. I know I just said that twice, but I'm trying to really make sure that we can follow this. And you may be one of those people where if I said it one time, it would just stick with you. But I'm one of those people that I have to see over and over for it to really stick. And so I'm not trying to be repetitive just for the sake of hearing my own voice. I'm trying to help you see this. So later, the narrator interrupts Elihu's speech in verses 15 through 16. So not only in the middle of speaking in the third person does he use the pronoun I, which is in the first person, but then the narrator continues on with Elihu speaking in the third person in verse 17, using the same format as before. So what I'm pointing out is that with the grammatical format that's used, it's inconsistent with the way the rest of the book of Job is written. Because in chapters 25, 26, and 27, they all specifically point out who will be doing the talking, like it said, Job said. Then they put the words spoken in quotation marks. And in chapter 27... It even interrupts Job's speech and then continues on with this same format and yet no one else does any talking in between what Job says. So here's the key. All that to say, the narrator starts chapter 32. Elihu begins speaking, which is consistent with how things have been so far. 
Then the narrator interrupts Elihu, and when Elihu begins speaking again, it's not broken up like it was in chapter 26 and 27, where it's separated when Job is speaking. So what is this showing? It's not broken up because not only is Elihu the narrator, he's also the author of the book of Job. So why is this important to understand? Because chapters 1, 2, and 42 are written by the author. And we know that these were inspired by God. So now that we know that Elihu is the author and narrator, because God corrected Job and his three friends in chapter 42, but not Elihu, we can take from that that chapters 32 through 37, can, which is where Elihu is speaking, can also be added to the list of chapters that can be used to interpret the book of Job properly. Again, I know I've said this several times, but remember that because God corrects Job and his three friends in chapters 3 through 31, we can benefit from them, but we cannot use them to literally interpret the book of Job. So again, and then God spoke in chapters 38 through 41. So chapters 1 through 2 and chapters 32 through 42 equal a total of 13 chapters out of 42 that we can use to properly interpret the book of Job. So the last way we know that Elihu is the narrator of the book of Job is because some of the things he said. Now we won't go too much into this, but I'll at least show you a couple examples and then leave the verse references for you to look it up if you want to. Job 9, 32 through 35. And this is Job speaking. Job said, For he, speaking of God, is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him, talking of God, take his rod away from me, and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. Now, to go along with that, Job 33, 6 through 7, and this is Elihu speaking. Elihu says, Truly, I am your spokesman before God. I also have been formed out of the clay. Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. So Elihu is basically saying that he is speaking on behalf of God and that he is the answer of Job's prayer. What did Job say? He says, God is not a man like me if I only had another man to be the mediator between me and God. And then Elihu comes in and says, I am your spokesman before God. I'm a man just like you. I was formed from the clay. So the next one is Job chapter 34, verse 35. And this is Elihu speaking. Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. And then in Job 38, 2, God speaks. And even though we're looking at verse 2, I just want to point out, and verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So Elihu tells Job he's speaking without knowledge. And then God says, You're speaking without knowledge. Job 37, 6, and this is Elihu speaking. For he says to the snow, Fall on the earth. Likewise to the gentle rain and the heavy rain of his strength. So in, then in Job 38, 22, God is speaking. Have you entered the treasury of snow or have you seen the treasury of hail? So again, Elihu is talking about the snow and how it falls and then God later brings up the snow. Job 36, 27 through 29, and this is Elihu speaking. For he, talking about God, draws up drops of water which distill his rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. Indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of clouds, the thunder from his canopy? And then God later on says in 
Job 38, 26 through 28. To cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man, to satisfy the desolate waste and cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass. Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? Also to go along with that, there's Job 37, 9 through 10, and that's where Elihu speaks. God later on talks on the same topic in Job 38 and 30. Another example is Job 37, 1 through 5. That's Elihu speaking. God later on speaks on the same topic and says in Job 38, verse 34. So again, there's probably more, but there's just a couple if you really wanted to look at it. And again, not showing those to try and be technical. I just want to point out there's another reason why we can be sure that Elihu is the author of the book of Job. So here's the gist. Elihu is saying a lot of the same things God is saying. And whether it be that God is repeating what Elihu is saying, but in his own words, or if what Elihu said was just clearly inspired by God, either way, God and Elihu are saying the same things. So why wasn't Elihu mentioned earlier than chapter 32? And what I believe is, is it's just because he was the one writing. He just didn't mention himself. So all that to say, Elihu is the author and the narrator. So why is that significant when we're trying to understand the book of Job? Because the first two chapters were written by the narrator, who we now know to be Elihu, and God never corrected Elihu, so we know we can use the first two chapters in the book of Job to properly interpret it. So here's a little recap. Chapters 1 and 2 tell the story of Job. It's written by the narrator we now know to be Elihu. We see the interactions between God and the devil as well as the terrible things that happened to Job up until his three friends arrive at the end of chapter 2. So we can use chapters 1 through 2 to properly interpret the book of Job. Chapters 3 through 31 records the interactions between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who made an appointment with Job to mourn and comfort him. We must understand that we can benefit from these chapters, but we cannot use them to properly interpret the book of Job. So why? Because God in chapter 42 corrects Job and his three friends saying, My wrath is aroused against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right. And again, God actually says that Job spoke correctly, and that was because Job admitted himself that what he had spoken was incorrect and that he spoke things he didn't understand. And God responds to Job and says, yes, you were correct because you yourself have said you were wrong. In chapters 32 through 37, Elihu is the one doing the speaking. In chapters 38 through 41, God is speaking. And then in chapter 42, the narrator picks back up sharing what Job and God said. So here's the moral to the story. (laughs) Chapters 3 through 31 can be used for our benefit, meaning they have things in it that can benefit us, But in order to properly interpret the book of Job or God's character and nature as we're trying to gain a better understanding of the sovereignty of God, we just simply can't use them. Chapters 1 through 2 and also 32 through 42 equal a total of 13 chapters that can be used to properly interpret the book of Job. Now after all that, we'll go ahead and get into the content of the book of Job. And we're going to start off by reading chapters 1 through 2. So again, Job chapters 1 through 2, I'm just going to go ahead and read because sometimes what I've learned is that as I start to go back and read stories, I'll tell you what, when I really got turned on to God again, 
And again, I've shared how I grew up in church. But when I started going back over and reading some of the things that Jesus said or some of the stories and this and that, there were things that I thought those stories that Jesus shared said in them. But when I went back over and read them, I was like, man, a lot of what I thought was in here wasn't in here or it was just tweaked a little bit, you know, this and that. So what we're going to do, we've been told the story of Job for so long that we're actually just going to go ahead and read the first two chapters. And, and again, this is the narrator speaking, and it's kind of giving the overview of what's happening in the life of Job. So Job chapter one, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face." And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided them and took them away, indeed they were killed, the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and from the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. So chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. 
And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a pot shared with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. So I want to point out first, Job was a man who loved God. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz, Uz, whatever, <laughs> however you pronounce that, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And again, to go along with that, verse 8 the latter part of verse 8 says, and this is God describing what Job says, There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. And then he goes on and describes him the same way in chapter 2, verse 3. Now in verse 22 in chapter 1, it says, In all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Chapter 2, verse 10, the latter part of that says, In all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now, this did not mean that Job had never sinned. You know, he wasn't Jesus. It just meant that he had a reverence for God and he sought after God. Now, one could try to get all technical and try to bring up the fact that it's very likely the book of Job was the first book of the Bible ever written. You know, many scholars believe this to be true. And because Romans 5.13 says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. And what that verse is simply saying is that, that man sinned before the Ten Commandments and law was given, but until it was given, sin was not being held against man. So sin still had a negative effect on man's condition or life, but it wasn't being held against them. You know, that's why Jesus had to come to take care of our sin debt so that we could have restored relationship with the Father. So one reason it's believed the book of Job was before the law of Moses was because there's no mention of it throughout the entire book of Job. And that would be very unlikely and isn't consistent with the other books of the Bible that are always making reference to the Ten Commandments and the law. So yes, Job, because this was before the law was given, didn't have sin charged to his account, but he did still sin. 
and there and there's more reasons than just that but you know that's just one all that to say god thought very highly of job because of job's faithfulness towards god so the most memorable takeaway from the book of job is that a bunch of bad stuff happened to him so someone wouldn't even need to be a believer to have heard that before you know job is you know make reference to the book of job that's sometimes a pretty common thing so in job's life his kids died his animals his servants he is struck with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And that was in chapter 2, verse 7. And even his wife told him, curse God and die. <laughs> and that was in verse 9 of chapter 2. But here's the question. Where did all this calamity in Job's life come from? Understanding this question is not only the key to properly understanding the book of Job, but also properly understanding the sovereignty of God. And that's what we're talking about in this series. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. Again, we will not be attempting to try and cover everything there is to know about the book of Job. There'll be a lot of things someone may think, well, how could you skip over that? And the answer is, oh, it was easy. I just skipped over it. <laughs> that was supposed to be a funny. But again, I don't claim to know everything there is to know, but I want to share with you what I believe to be true. And you then can come to your own conclusion from what I've shared and your time spent reading the book of Job yourself, and allowing the Holy Spirit to minister to you. So Job 1, verse 7, And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Satan gives the same response in Job 2, verse 2, the second time he comes before God. So why is this significant? Because we now have the New Testament, and we know what Satan was up to. He wasn't just checking out the sites, you know, seeing what God had created, just going around, looking at everything. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And then verse 9, it continues on and says, Resist him, steadfast in the faith. And again, if everything was from God, why would we need to be sober? Why would we need to be vigilant? Why would we need to not allow ourselves to be devoured by the devil, why would we need to resist it? You know, we wouldn't need to because it would all be from God. But again, for us in the new covenant, the devil can't just devour anyone. He's going about seeking who will allow him to devour them. And how do we allow ourselves to be devoured? First, we have to know that evil is not from God, but it's from Satan. And that's why the sovereignty of God teaching is so important. Second, we need to fight against his schemes and use the authority that Jesus bought and paid for to give us. So Satan was going to and fro on the earth looking for someone to devour. Now I want to point out, Satan's not all-knowing or omnipresent like God is. He had to go around and search for someone to come against because it's not like he just knew every situation that was out there. He's not God. So that leads us to Job 1 verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Then later, when Satan comes back a second time, God uses the exact same wording but adds, and that's in chapter 2, verse 3, he adds, And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you, Satan, incited me, God, against him. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So what I hear when I read that is that God's proud of Job. He basically was just bragging about Job to Satan. God wasn't trying to get Job to be persecuted by the devil, 
But that's what you hear a lot, is that God suggested Job and that God wanted Job to be persecuted and that he approved the afflictions on Job and that he allowed it to happen. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but if someone were to believe that God allowed it, he approved it or he suggested it, that would imply that it's the devil who's doing the afflicting and not God. I mean, if it were God doing the persecuting, it wouldn't be necessary to make a suggestion. He could just zap Job with calamity right away. And that's the big hang-up with the extreme sovereignty of God false doctrine is that it says God's the one bringing hardships into our lives. That the terrible things Job experienced were ways to purify him. That they were actually blessings in disguise. <laughs> it's, it's just not true. Again, what did God do? He simply brought it out in the open that Job was a God-honoring man. He knew what Satan was doing. Satan was already out and about trying to seek someone that he could devour. But we'll touch on that more here in a little bit. We'll just continue on with the point the word makes in the order it does. Job chapter 1, 9 through 10. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You, talking about God, you have blessed the word of, of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. So Satan himself points out that up until this point, all God had done was bless Job. This shows that God's will towards Job was the blessing. You can see God blessed Job with a large family and belongings, and that was in chapter 1, verse 2 through 3. And even after all the bad things happened, that by the way were because of Satan, you can read all the things God blessed Job with in chapter 42, 10 through 16, saying, The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before, and that the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. So here's the key. God had only blessed Job up until this point, and there's zero Bible proof to believe he wouldn't have just continued to bless him had Satan never come along. And here's another thought. If it was God's will for trials and persecutions in our lives, then he would have created everything that way from the beginning instead of making it perfect. You know, in Genesis, first and second chapters, like maybe it was just the first chapter, he, he created things and he said they were good. If God wanted it different than that, then he wouldn't have made it that way, but he made it good. Job 1, 11 through 12. So this is Satan talking to God. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So what I want to point out is that Satan was trying to get God to strike Job. But God tells Satan, All that he has is in your power. Satan didn't recognize he was in charge. God's basically saying, I'm not taking on your job description. I'm not cursing what I've already blessed. And for us in the New Testament, what's cool is the moment that you receive Jesus, you're already blessed. You were blessed right then. And blessing and abundance doesn't have anything to do with the amount of things you have. It can include that because God wants good just like any father wants good for their own child. But you are blessed. Present tense. You've already got it. You are blessed the moment you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So to continue on, this also happened in Job 2, verse 6. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spares life. So we a lot of times give Satan too much credit. 
Now, I wouldn't say Satan is exactly dumb, but I can say he's definitely not smart. Satan had been given all authority on the earth since the day Adam and Eve gave it to him in the garden, and he simply didn't know it. If that sounds like blasphemy, here's some scriptures. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. 2 Corinthians 4.4 and whom the God, small g, little g, not, not God the Father, God, devil, little g, of this world, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. John fourteen thirty, and this is Jesus speaking, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Ephesians 2, 2 in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So Satan had control and he just didn't know it. So back to Job 1.11. And this is where Satan tells God to stretch out his hand and afflict him. And he's talking about God's hand. God tells him all that he has is in your power. So some may say, see, God told him to afflict Job. And I'd say, no, let's not put words in God's mouth. All God did was point out that Satan already had authority on earth. God did not permit it or allow it. It wasn't God's to permit or allow. It wasn't God's to permit. And it wasn't God's to allow. He set it up for mankind to have dominion and authority on earth. And the devil stole it away from them. But be of good cheer. Jesus overcame the world. He took back the keys of authority. And it's our job as his hands and feet to enforce what he took back. But I just want to point out, Satan actually at this time had the legal right to Job. Job still had a sin nature. And why is that? Because Jesus hadn't died yet. Job was under Satan's dominion. God had no choice but to quote unquote allow it. But again, the word allow, this doesn't mean he was okay with it and wanted bad things to happen to him. It means there wasn't anything he could have done because of the systems he set in place. And why? Because he doesn't violate his word. So go back and listen to part three of this series where we explain that. So to piggyback on top of this, I also want to point out Job 2 verse 3. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you, Satan, incited me, God, against him. So you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So God points out, you incited me against him. You deceived him into thinking it was me who was afflicting him. So this is key. If we place our value on the word of God more than we do our pastor or parents or friends or grandparents who all their lives told us that bad things come from God, which is clearly a misinterpretation of the book of Job. If we believe the Bible to be the absolute truth, then God himself saying, I didn't do those things. It was Satan. That should really bear witness with us. Here's a question for you. When God himself says he didn't do it, is that enough for you? <laughs> well, for me, it is. Remember, good God, bad devil. So then in chapter 1, verse 13, the narrator begins to share all the terrible things that happened to Job. And verse 16, while he, and I just want to point out, this is the narrator sharing what the messenger said. So while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God 
fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So it's important to point out that it was the messenger who said the fire came from God. It wasn't Elihu, the narrator. Why is that important? Because it wasn't from God. (laughs) Remember, God told Satan in 1 verse 12, Behold, all that he, Job, has is in your power, is in Satan's power. So where did this fire come from? It came from the devil. It was not from God. So in verse 18 through 21, While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Again, God later says in 2 verse 3 that you, Satan, got Job to think it was me bringing calamity on him. So where did the great wind come from? It wasn't God. It was Satan. Then Job also says the common phrase we hear today, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And from that comes God is sovereign. Only what God allows happens. All things happen for a reason. God's will always comes to pass. And the nicest way I can respond to that is that's just not true. You know, I I had planned on saying some things there, but then I actually cut them out because it's like, it's like listening to someone talk bad about your wife or your spouse or your kids or something like that. And you, and let's say just, let's say for the sake of argument, it is a fact that they didn't do what those people are saying. And so for us to sit there and listen to people say things that just for the sake of this argument that they absolutely did not do and then to hear people just bash them and say they did this and say, you know, there's only so much of that we can take. <laughs> let me let me clarify without responding and saying, you know what, that's just not true. And that's what I feel this sovereignty of God stuff is doing. My dad, my father, God, is not what this extreme sovereignty of God doctrine, false doctrine, has been saying. And it's what so many of us believe because it came from someone we place value in. Well, what I'm trying to share with you is place more value on the word of God than the opinion of another man. And if you think I'm wrong, if the Holy Spirit's ministering to you something that's you know just a point that I'm saying that's wrong, well, then listen to the Holy Spirit. If you think that the Holy Spirit is ministering to you that everything I'm sharing to you is wrong, well, then throw it out. I don't believe that to be true because we're looking at Scripture and we're reading it right here. But anyways, listen to the Word. Listen to the Holy Spirit above any man. So one thing I want to point out here is it's awesome Job didn't get angry at God. He didn't curse God. He actually fell to the ground and worshiped God. And that was in verse 20. And that's why it says in verse 22, And all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job didn't sin or charge God with wrong when he said, The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. He simply believed wrong. He was deceived by the enemy. Again, chapter 2, verse 3, in the latter part of that verse says, And still he, talking about Job, holds fast to his integrity, although you, Satan, incited me, God, against him to destroy him without cause. Satan got him to think it was God bringing the calamity on him. And that just was not true. 
ultimately Job didn't understand the calamity he was having to endure wasn't from God. Chapter 2, verse 10. And this is Job speaking to his wife. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Again, Job didn't have the understanding that God wasn't the reason for the terrible things happening in his life. He didn't sin, but he just didn't understand that it wasn't God that was putting these things on him. It was Satan. There's so much more that can be taken from the book of Job that we're just not going to get into today. But my hope is that after being aware of some of the things we've talked about, it'll help you the next time something from the book of Job is referenced. And to be honest, there's so much more that I personally don't understand. But I just wanted to share with you some things that I've learned. I want to help us to be able to understand how to read the book of Job so that we don't misinterpret what it's trying to say to us. But my hope is that after being made aware of some of the things we've talked about today, it'll help you the next time you're either reading the book of Job or someone makes a reference to the book of Job. I hope that it helps you. And my expectation is that it'll help you moving forward. But I just want to point out again, just like we started off, how there's two houses. There's the house that's founded on the rock, which is Jesus. And there's the house that was built upon the sand, and that's according to the the world. Each house is going to have storms come its way. But we need to make sure that our rock and our foundation is Jesus so that we can cooperate with what he wants us to do and be overcomers in everything that we do. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time on the Abundance Podcast.